Welcome. Uh, we have one announcement. Uh, Bill Gillette will be joining the church uh, with a um, reaffirmation of faith. My elders are gone. I think that's what it was. Um, he went through the membership class. He asked uh, questions. I explained stuff to him so he knows what he's getting into. And he still wants to join, so that's a good thing. <clears throat> Other than that, um, there are no other pressing announcements. The men's uh, study is this Tuesday night. If you can make it. A study. It's not a study. It's a get-together. We talk about things because we don't see each other outside of Sunday often. We have the call to worship. Praise waiteth for thee, O God, in Zion, and unto thee shall the vow be performed. Let's bow our hearts and heads in silent preparation for worship. stand and praise our Lord with Psalm 100B, 100B inside the Trinity Psalter hymnal.
Amen. Let us pray. We are grateful, God, that your praise and name shall endure forevermore, and that you have brought us into your glorious presence through the blood of Christ Jesus, and we can praise you forevermore as well. We thank you for this day of rest and the uh, freedom that we have and the ability, God, although there's not much freedom in economics as as there used to be because of the law changes, God. Freedom to be here. Our employers are letting us come here, God, to worship your name, to be with the saints, to stand in your presence, to hear your word. We pray, Lord, that we would therefore adjust our hearts and turn away from distractions, God, and to set our heart upon you with joy and thanksgiving. We pray these things in accordance to the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, it is now and never shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We have the responsive reading of Psalm 47 inside the bulletin and insert Psalm 47. I will read the bold face. Oh, clap your hands, all you peoples. Shout to God with a voice of triumph. He will subdue the peoples under us and the nations under our feet. He will God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with understanding. The princes of the people have gathered together, the people of the God of Abraham, for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. And clearly a psalm of praise before the Lord, a psalm that we can sing with our hearts, and a psalm that looks to the future as well, uh, that the nations would be subdued under the feet of Lord Jesus Christ. So the, His subduing of them is twofold, as we know. One is unto judgment if they repent not and submit not to him. And two is us. We are part of the nations, uh, the goyim, uh, ethnos in the New Testament, who have been saved and delivered by our Lord and Savior and brought into his presence as nations of this earth to praise and worship him. Let us bow our hearts before him in God's covenant community prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God above, you who are maker of heaven and earth, you who sustain all things, you who are our redeemer and our deliverer, not just in the past and eternity, God, where the Father has 
arranged our deliverance and salvation. And in the past, when Christ Jesus came, a second member of the Trinity, became man, fully God and fully man, to identify in our stead and fulfill the covenant of works, Lord, and to take our place in judgment. He, Lord, who died for us, he who accomplished redemption in its fullness, and for the spirit of truth, even here and now, who is among us and has brought us, Lord, to the application of the work of redemption. We are grateful for all these things that you continue to do for us and our souls and for our bodies, God, for you, our Lord, who takes care of us as well, body and soul. And we are thankful for the many things that we have, even in the weak and suffering economy and those who suffer therein, Lord. May we rejoice that what we have to the extent, Lord, that we have something, but always rejoice, God, because we have the fullness of salvation of our souls and the promise of a better time in the future when Christ Jesus shall return and all our difficulties of our body and our soul shall be wiped away. Meanwhile, God, we struggle with our sins. We have sins of omission. And, Lord, we are distracted, perhaps, from the, the call and the path of holiness. Lord, we give in to temptation and thought, word, or deed, perhaps, and whatever our sins are, Lord, may we acknowledge them, not just on this day, but every day and any time in which we find ourselves in sin and convicted by your Spirit. We ask, Lord, that we would continue to grow in our understanding of the Gospel. And joy in our hearts, God, to know that you, through Christ Jesus, have forgiven our sins of omission, have forgiven our distractions from holiness, have forgiven our giving in and yielding to temptation. That you have covered our sins, Lord, through Christ Jesus. And you tell us, Lord, that your mercies are new every morning. Help us, God, to grow in understanding and in joy of the Spirit, the forgiveness that we have through Christ Jesus by faith alone. We lift up our family concerns before you, Lord, that our families would stand firm and strong, that you would be with us, Lord, that our husbands would continue to love and lead their wives, that the wives would continue to submit and support their husbands, that the children, Lord, would love their parents and obey them and resist the peer pressure around them in their neighborhoods and in the school communities, wherever else they may be, not just in our church, Lord, but in our Presbytery, God, and sister churches and any Christian here in the Denver metro area, God, uh, that have and various sundry issues in their family, as we all do, Lord, things that we struggle with ourselves or extended families, with our children, God, that we have our duties, and that we pray that you would be with us and help us, Lord, to obey them and to follow your ways with a joyful heart, we pray. Help us not be isolated as families or as couples or as singles, but to know, Lord, that we are here for one another. That's why we have committed ourselves and our membership vows, God, that we have the priorities for each other, Lord, and not to strangers across the town. Help us, God, to be examples to one another. We who are single or couples without children, Lord, or who had children and grew up and left the home, Lord, be examples to young couples who wish to start a family and to have children, God. And for those who already have children, that we would have positive peer pressure among each other to encourage us unto godliness and a life of holiness, Lord, and to fight back against the bad influences around us wherever we go, it seems. We pray, Lord, that you would be with us, all of us, Lord, to do our duties before you and to love one another. We pray for our extended family, Lord, for our grandparents and uh, for our cousins and nieces and uncles and all those others, Lord, that often we find we're not near anymore and that uh, for various reasons in your providence, God, they are elsewhere. We pray for them and the salvation of their souls if they are not saved. And we ask, God, that you would help us continue to love them and to think well of them and to pray for them and to have patience with them, we ask. We lift up, Lord, our concerns for the family and the 
supported the family, not just relationally, physically, and our health, Lord, that we would take care of ourselves the best of our ability. Give us access to good health, Lord, and to continue to pray for those who have chronic ailments and sicknesses that are upon them, Lord. But we pray also for economic support, God, for our families, for jobs that can support families, which is the basis of society for thousands of years in all kinds of cultures. And so, Lord, we pray for this difficult economy we find ourselves in where part of the problem is we don't have full information of how bad things are or how good things are in some parts of the economy. Um, we have half-truths often, it seems, and it's very hard to tell. We all have some information others don't have, perhaps. Help us, Lord, to grow in understanding so that we can react accordingly and we can save if we need to, or spend if we need to, or invest if we need to, not only for our families and as couples and as singles, Lord, but for our church and our presbytery, God, as we have funds as well. You have designed the church to live inside of these structures of economic and relational and physical confines, Lord. We pray for the blessing upon the church and therefore a blessing upon the economy for the sake of your people, we pray. Certainly, Lord, we love our neighbor and pray for their good as well, but ultimately for the best good for them, which is the saving of their souls. We ask for better jobs, better working conditions, Lord. And we ask for continued wisdom, and we would raise up, we ask, and pray through your spirit. Uh, leaders who understand the times and seasons which we find ourselves in, and will have um, ways of helping us out of these, not just political leaders, but economic leaders, Lord, and those of influence and power in our society. Help us, we pray, as church here at Providence, to be wise with your funds to help those in need, as we've done these many, many uh, years and decades, God. You have blessed us in so many ways at Providence, Lord. And I've seen, and others have seen, how we have been able to help the poor. And we pray that we continue to help those in need among us, God. And that we would put our sources together, even if it's not always funds. We certainly have, perhaps, time and other resources to help one another and to encourage and to even instruct to give us a better way, perhaps, of doing things, of taking care of our house and our family and the like, that we will be open to such things and grow in humility and fruit of the Spirit, we pray, in our church. We ask God that you would be with us this morning in double measure, and that we would grow thereby through the means of grace. For your glorious name's sake, we pray. Amen. We now have the tithes and offerings. you, God, for the opportunity to give the tithes and offerings in spite of uh, maybe perhaps various sundry difficulties we have in life. And thankful for the opportunity, Lord, to glorify your name through these tithes and offerings. And we ask, God, that they would indeed be expanded for the work of your kingdom. Amen.
While we are standing, let us continue to sing hymn 172, 172. seated. 
Let us turn to our Bibles to Leviticus chapter 22. No, I'm not going to go through Leviticus. Um, I teased you with it last week, but I thought it good to continue another text on it. There's a lot of texts uh, about holiness and God's law, actually, uh, in the latter part of Leviticus, the moral law of God. It's coming out of there now. Leviticus chapter 22, verses 32 and 33. He is speaking to the priests of the Old Testament. As we shall see, it's still relevant for us today. Let us listen attentively to God's word. You shall not profane my holy name, but I will be hallowed among the children of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. Let us pray. Our God and Savior, we're grateful for the book of Leviticus, for you have given us to us through the pen of Moses and the spirit of truth to not only instruct the Old Testament church on how to worship you and to follow you in various and sundry ways and social relationships, God, uh, but today it shows and highlights, God, in vivid form the call of holiness, especially the call of moral holiness, but also the call of worship holiness, God, taking your word seriously. So we see admonitions such as this, although given to the priest, God, are still given to us, for we are a royal priesthood, in fact, today through Christ Jesus our Lord. Help us, God, to be encouraged here in the call, the call of separation and consecration, as we shall see in this and other verses we pray. Amen. So the title here, I struggle with the title here, partly because in the Old Testament and partly in the New Testament as well, there are a number of terms, words, synonyms for holiness, right? Godliness, separation, consecration, and the like. And then the twofold division that we have in sanctification, at least logically, it doesn't it happen in parallel, in fact, simultaneously in the Christian life, as we're going to go through in the Shorter Catechism, right? Dying unto sin and living unto righteousness. And so I'm going to tie those two together because it's the same theme. The Old Testament language, the metaphors, the imagery, of course, drawn from the ceremonial system brought through the hand of Moses, Mount Sinai, uh, was... Vivid, living imagery of a life of holiness. No longer used in New Testament sense exclusively anymore. Of course, not in outward action. We don't have to kill animals or I don't have to wear an ephod, thankfully. Uh, But they point to the broader idea of moral purity, both in worship and in everyday life. That is public worship and everyday worship, we should say. The book of Leviticus is full of Old Testament worship forms, as we know, from animal sacrifices to the priestly institution, but intermixed in these commands that have passed away are described as well other laws. There are moral exhortations, moral principles still binding upon us today in explicit form. In chapter 22, we have God speaking through Moses to the priesthood. The Lord spoke to Moses, verse 1, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, that they separate themselves from the holy things of the children of Israel, and that they do not profane my holy name by what they dedicate to me. I am the Lord. The idea of separation is there throughout the Old Testament. The word, interestingly enough, is only used twice, I believe, in Leviticus. And this is one of those places given to the priests. The other places we will read a little later, given to the people. 
This idea of separation is key, one of the keys to the life of holiness, both in the Old Testament and New Testament era. We read about separation from uncleanness over and over again, and in particular in chapter 15, for example, thus you shall separate the children of Israel, not just the priests, everyone who is in the church of God, lest they die in their uncleanness when they defile my tabernacle that is among them. God is a holy God, as we preached, as I preached on last week, and you heard last week both as to his being and to the moral expressions that we are called to follow. Morality is what we typically think of as holiness. That's what we're emphasizing here, our call of following his commandments. And that means being separated from uncleanness, not from the uncleanness of touching a dead animal, although you probably want to wash your hands, but you don't have to be ceremonially restricted from going to church for a week or something. Uh, as you have there in the Old Testament. God went above and beyond that. Like you talk to a child and you give them extra rules to teach them some lessons that you can pull back later. That's the imagery of Galatians 4, as we know, between the Testaments. And so that's done away with. But the fact and the call of holiness has not. So these verses are still very much relevant. Of being separated from that which is unclean and separated unto holiness. Or as I put it here, separated... And separation and consecration. So separation from and consecration unto is how I'm using the language here. And as I said, although the entire chapter here, verse 22, is written to the Old Testament priests explicitly, the Jewish leaders were not exempt from the call of holiness. They were just given more rules. That's the same. Everyone was supposed to be holy in Israel, and the priest even more holy. And thus, these verses are still very much relevant to us and to the Jews back then, in fact. Not only so they would, they would know the requirements of their leaders, as you're supposed to know the requirements of your leaders, and hold them to the Word of God, but that they themselves can draw some encouragement, motivation, and peer pressure, as it were, in the positive sense, that we too should not profane God's holy name, verse 32, but hallow him among the children of Israel, because God sanctifies us. For our purposes, the end verses are still relevant, as I just read here, for church officers and church members, And I chose to highlight it because it mentions the idea of holiness as well, both negatively and positively. You shall not profane my holy name. Don't sin. Don't do this particular sin, but rather hollow it. Do righteousness. Uh, Uplift the Lord our God among the children of Israel, because I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So that first part, that negative thou shalt not, and the second part, the positive thou shalt, is part of the Christian life of holiness. Thou shalt die unto sin, Thou shalt not sin, thou shalt live under righteousness. Very much similar. As public leaders, the priests were not to profane God's holy name. A command obviously binding for laymen. He's not saying, obviously, hey, any random Jew can profane God's name, just not the priests. So again, it's clearly still applicable for us today. The positive word there, to hollow God's name is another word for holiness, or to treat God in a special manner. Not just his name, obviously, but all that's attached to who he is. And what he has done for us. So we read in the third commandment. And so, again, it's a little awkward, I suppose, to use separation and consecration, but there's hallowed, there's holiness, there's godliness. All these different synonyms talking about what it means to be a Christian in the Christian life. Or sanctification, that's another word. To be sanctified, to be set aside for a special purpose. And that's the rubric or the word that we use in theology and in our confession often. 
But I wanted to take a different tact and unpack that uh, life of holiness or sanctification that we are called unto. And so uh, here, I, I read this as a command to separate not only from and away from sin, thou shalt not profane the name of the Lord our God, as being one particular instance of the broader principle, but to live unto a holiness of life, or to hallow God's name. The positive part. And so I, I loosely connect it here connected here um, to separation or dying unto sin and consecration living unto righteousness in my two points. The same concept, as I said, is there in the Shorter Catechism. Question 35 is where I get the secondary headings here, dying unto sin and living unto righteousness. I don't really get it from them. I get it from the Bible because they're just summarizing those passages in the New Testament that we're going to read. What is Sanctification, question 35. Sanctification is a work of God's free grace, which I talked about last week. It is God who sanctifies you, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God, all that you are in thought, word, and deed, body and soul, mind, will, and emotion, everything. And are enabled more and more to die into sin, to be separated from sin, and to live under righteousness or consecrated unto God and hallow his name. You see the connection there already? At least conceptually, although there's all these different words. It's the same idea in the Old Testament is there. Unpacked in the New. The twofold work of God is expressed through the Old Testament language, as I said, of separation and consecration. And now we shall unpack that. Separation, the first point, dying unto sin is the call of every Christian. Not just super godly, holy Christians, all Christians. And in the preaching of the gospel and the calling of people through faith and repentance, to be baptized, to follow Jesus, they need to be told what they're getting into. And this is part of what we're getting into. Galatians 6.14, But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Although not a command, this is the point of accomplishment, a sub-point. And then I'll talk about attitude, and then I'll talk about command. To encourage us, before we get to the command, that all is not lost. That Christ has accomplished redemption through us, and upon us, in his life and his work for us. And it's sustained by the Spirit, that we have been crucified to the world, and I to the world. Killed. That's what the word is. Crucify is a very good word. It's another way of saying you're dead. You're dead in principle, and we're going to be dead in practice, although it may take a lifetime. In fact, it will take a lifetime. But the encouragement is what Paul has here when he tells the Galatians, who are flirting with the heresy of being justified by their own good works, God forbid that I should boast in anything except for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has done it all, and I've been crucified through him, set aside, and I've died to the world. That's the call of death based upon the accomplishment of that fact in Christ Jesus and applied to us by the Spirit day by day. It's an attitude as well, John 12, 25. He that loveth his life shall lose it. And he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto eternal life. Of course, Christ is here playing off this um, way of speaking he often does uh, th- that the uh, rabbis would use, these literary tools here. So he has his wordplay. He that loves his life shall lose it. 
Well, how can that be? I mean, obviously someone comes after me with a sword. I should dodge the sword. Oh, you're loving your life. You should lose. No, he's saying people who have only this world and not Jesus Christ. Are you willing to give up this world, the pleasures therein, especially the pleasures of sin, to follow Jesus, to die to the temptations and the desires of this world of sin. And they are the ones that shall actually keep their life. That is a better life. It's a different kind of life. Between the physical life and the spiritual life, he bounces between the two ideas there to highlight that the Pharisees, he's usually hammering home, and not just them, but anybody else listening, that there's more to it. You must follow Jesus and be willing to have, I don't know, the rest of the Sanhedrin make fun of you and mock you. The fame of this life, willing to give it up, and of course your sins especially. So that's the attitude. You have to love Jesus and hate the sins of this world and to follow him. All, of course, because we're born again and it's been accomplished through Christ Jesus. You cannot kill what you do not hate, is another way of saying this. Even if the hate is temporary or not as intense or mixed with other emotions, you are called to not love this world, or he that hates his life in this world shall keep it. Obviously, Christ is speaking relatively. He's not saying, what's your problem? Why aren't you hating yourself right now and hating this life? But compared to the temptations of this world, we want to hate that and eschew it and flee from it. That's what he's talking about. Because sin will look at you with puppy dog eyes and whimper and try to drag you into temptation and sin. And we're supposed to hate that and flee from it. So that as the world sees it, we're dying. Kind of a life is Christian life. It's a terrible life. It's a dying life. And Christ says, yes, it, it looks like it is dying, but you're going to have a real life. They're actually going to die. They have a terrible, miserable existence that they're living in right now to some extent will ultimately live in if they repent not. And it's a command. It's a command, and that's the highlight here. Colossians 3.5 Therefore, put to death your members, right? Not a suggestion. Which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. How can you put it to death if you do not hate it? But if you love it. So Christ says, if you love this life... You're going to die. You're not going to get it. You have to hate the life, the life of sin, this world, this world of sin, and kill it. Now, I want to tie the Old Testament to the New Testament explicitly here. The Old Testament language of a New Testament reality, and an Old Testament reality, although in hidden behind forms, Romans 12.1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, you all know this one, right, as a living sacrifice. Well, that's interesting language. I thought we didn't have sacrifices in the New Testament. What's Paul saying? But that the imagery of the Old Testament, yes, it points to Jesus Christ, right? Christ is the lamb on the altar. Christ is the altar. And Christ is the priest offering himself for our salvation. It's quite interesting, right? All these things. Hebrews talks about and elsewhere. And yet he still applies it to us. So Paul doesn't have this confused way of preaching, which is it's always about uh, Christ in the abstract or historical Christ, but that also Christ, not just for us, right? He is outside in the alien righteousness of justification, but also Christ in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Sanctification, growth, maturity, obedience, a life of holiness. 
And the language of the sacrifice, yes, about Christ, but also about us, because we are in Christ, and we too are supposed to be sacrificed as he was, but not to save ourselves, but because we already are saved, Galatians, it's been accomplished, we are crucified to the world. And he's saying, this is the call of holiness, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It's the most rational thing for a Christian to do and believe. A living sacrifice is living death. I mean, sacrificing, you're killing something. So the Old Testament imagery here, right? Leviticus is full of what? Sacrifices and priests. And you go back to it and you're like, oh, okay. So Paul's saying the issue of the sacrifices, yes, Hebrews, it's about Christ, but also it's us in Christ sacrificing our life of sin and even potential prosperity in this world. For the sake of Jesus Christ, we are called to offer ourselves up by the grace of Jesus and to kill sin. A call to put to death is broad. Therefore, put to death your members, that is, sinful members, the use of your hands. The word members, of course, is shorthand, a way of speaking about using your hands for sin. He's not saying cut off your arm, gut your stomach, but don't use it for sin. Kill the use of your body for wickedness. And it's a broad, broad command. Members that are on the earth, all that you have, your thought, your words, your deeds, your hands, your feet, your eyes, your ear gates, right? Use them for righteousness, but kill their use. Kill their use for wickedness and sin. And it's a broad list there of the body and all that we have. And it's diverse as well. Fornication, uncleanness, which is a very broad term. Passion, uh, that in evil desires and covetousness and the like. We are called to repent of these and eschew them. Some of the sins are more particular than others, like fornication, because we are called to a life of repenting of particular sins particularly, not just vaguely and generally in the church of Jesus Christ. This is the life of holiness that we are called to, to put to death your members that are on the earth. That imagery there of putting to death is a strong image and used a number of times by Paul. To crucify, another word. Mortify, right? Mortification, to kill. That's the one half of the Christian life that in many ways is perhaps the hardest because we already have, like gravity, an inclination towards sin, kind of leaning this way towards the sin. God says, kill that lane. <laughs> kill the supports that are pushing you that way, the foundation around you, perhaps in your life, the habits and the ways of doing things. Kill them. Hate sin. We must cultivate that attitude in this life all the more in this dark day and age that we find ourselves in. And it's a lifelong battle, Galatians 5.17, for the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, and so that you do not do the things that you wish. He acknowledges and recognizes Christians, yes, born again, yes, holy, separated from the world, dead to the world, as we read Galatians, still in practice struggle. Romans 7 is an excellent chapter expressing that struggle. When we are tempted towards sin, like a magnet, being pulled. No, 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 no. That's the attraction. 
that we still struggle with. All, all of us have different attractions and different struggles at different times and different seasons in our life, in fact. Some are chronic, some are not, some are multiple, some fade out and come back. It's a lifelong battle. He just states it as a fact in Romans 7 and in Galatians here. The flesh lusts or has desires against the spirit, and the spirit of God has desires against the flesh, designs against the flesh. And he uses the power of grace to overcome that in our life one step at a time. God does not eradicate sin in one fell swoop as much as we wish it. Not in our sanctification. It's not always intense, this battle. It's not like we have to be depressed all the time, uh, always in turmoil every day, although that happens upon some people. But it's real. right? Everyone, everyone experiences it differently. Some people are more stoic than others. That doesn't mean they're no less serious and have struggles with sin. So we should not define these struggles of sanctification, the growth of sanctification, in fact, uh, by subjective means that way. Now, one of the things, and I'll go through this a little more in another sermon, but here to highlight one important means of killing sin in the Christian life, of dying unto sin, of being separate from wickedness and violations of God's law, is through discipline. Used a number of times the language of discipline by Paul. And so in 1 Timothy 4.7, we read about godliness through discipline, and that word there is gymnasium. Where we get gymnasium? Quite interesting. So it's a very graphic picture of the Christian life, of the grueling hours, of course, of weights and stretches, of diet and sweat. That's certainly not something I like to do. Up and down at dawn and dusk, but not for sports, for holiness, for obedience, for, in particular, killing sin and rejecting temptation, of equipping yourself to resist and avoid and dodge sin around us, and ultimately, if you can grab it, kill it in our lives. Self-discipline is also highlighted again in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, where he talks about self-denial. That's a particular word there, right? I don't box, but I don't fight, I don't run the race, except I give self-denial, and I work and deny myself of things, and that's the call of the Christian life, not just discipline broadly, but self-denial in particular, say no. No to sin. No to the temptation to sin, no to the influence of sin, no to negative, evil peer pressure, no, no, no. That's one half. Again, there in the Old Testament, expressed through the imagery of the ceremonial system to the godly Jews who see this and say, this is my calling. I mean, when you are giving the sacrifice as a Jew in the Old Testament, the priest is there and you... Depending on the sacrifice that you give, you do different things, and you involve in different things. You eat some of it, you don't eat some of it, like the whole burnt offering. It's completely devoured by the fire. That's why it's called that, the Olah. As an expression of the giver, the Jew is supposed to recognize, that's me, I deserve to die, like this animal, and to be totally consumed, like the whole burnt offering. But instead, God gives me a substitute. And so part of that imagery, it's all overlapping, right? Justification and sanctification, because it's just that imagery. It serves multiple purposes. Again, Paul tells us we're supposed to live a life of living sacrifice. The godly Jew knew that. They knew this imagery is not just the promised Messiah who would die for me, but my call of being holy before God, expressed through this sacrifice. So, 
Second point, not just separation to die and to sin, but consecration to be devoted, holy, separated unto righteousness. To hallow God, as the text tells us. To hallow his name, as he says elsewhere. To live unto righteousness, again, Old Testament language used in the New Testament. Philippians 4.18, Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from uh, Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma. Well, that's interesting. Was it a smelly gift? An acceptable sacrifice. Ah. You see that? Sacrificial language used again. The killing of animals, the altars, the imagery there has the idea behind it of sanctification, of a call of not only killing sin and life of holiness, but more positively, an acceptable sacrifice. Well-pleasing to God. He did something good. He sent things, things sent from you. Goods, helps for the poor, whatever it was, we do not know specifically. But he says, this is, he just takes it for granted. We all know. He's like, eh, you know, I'm using Old Testament Levitical language. It's about sanctification. It's about good works. It's about the call of holiness, a life of righteousness. Not just eschewing sin, but embracing obedience. Romans 8, 13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so part of living under righteousness, of course, is the dying. Uh, Again, we mentioned that before. But here the idea is we are called to live by the Spirit, a life of holiness, obeying. If you love me, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Holiness, as I mentioned last week, is not just a feeling, an abstraction, but obedience, a life of righteousness. Perfect obedience? No. Does your child have perfect obedience? No. Put up a lot with your child. They grow up. They learn a little more. They do a little more. You stretch them. That's what we are, brothers and sisters, compared to eternity in heaven. We are still children learning more and more obedience. And that should be encouraging instead of discouraging. Because we're not in heaven yet. God has not given us that promise, but rather the call, the manly call of killing sin and living unto godliness or holiness or righteousness. All these synonyms saying the same thing. To follow Christ in his laws, to say yes to him, to say yes to his law, to say yes to his means of grace for the growth of sanctification, of church and of baptism, of the sacraments. That's holiness. In the Old Testament, mixed together, to them it was all the same, right? They had to obey killing of the animals, supporting the priest, building a temple, as though it was one of the Ten Commandments. Because in one sense, it really was. It was God telling them to do it. That's the Fifth Commandment. God's the greatest Father of all, right? We're supposed to honor Him. In the New Testament, you're like, we don't have to do that anymore. Isn't that great? No, but we do. It's called baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those are also ceremonial things. They're just a lot easier. Not smelly anymore. It's stinky and bleeding, bleeding goats and things like that. That too shall pass in eternity, as we know. So, although it's shrunk, we can still go here and go, oh, look, worship was serious. Uh, Worship was us going before a holy God. That's the emphasis of Leviticus. Holiness, the holiness of God in particular. And, of course, what's intermingled in Leviticus, as we saw here at the end of chapter 22, and in parts of 19 and elsewhere, are clear non-ceremonial laws, moral commands. 
and moral principles. One of those principles, again, not explicit in the Old Testament, although they're in types and forms, is the language and the dynamics, is probably a better word, of putting off and putting on. This is the call of growth, putting off and putting on. Colossians 3.8, But now you yourselves are to put off these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language, out of your mouth. What is that called in the other language of Paul, the putting off? Killing, crucifying, mortifying. Same idea. And have put on the new man, which is renewed, the knowledge of the image of him that created him, that is, put on righteousness, a life of holiness and obedience, or vivification is the technical term, to bring to life in the Christian life. That's the twofold calling that we have. Not to profane, to eschew sin, to kill temptations, and to rather hallow God among the children of Israel, or among the church of God, where we are today. We are the children of Israel as well. Of a life of holiness, a positive direction of obedience, to kill the works of the flesh, and thought, word, and deed, and to put on the works of righteousness. This is relevant here, because when I talk about, in the second point, consecration unto a life of living of righteousness, the way you do that is you replace sin. What is he saying, Colossians and elsewhere? Stop lying, but rather tell the truth. That's the life of holiness. Stop stealing, but rather what? Work with your hands. Be productive. Fulfill the Eighth Commandment. That's the dynamic. That's why these two points go together and all these verses overlap and kind of intermingle this way. It's so obvious to Paul, and he just says these things. I would argue it's there in Leviticus and elsewhere in the Old Testament. And the imagery therein to not profane the holy name, but rather replace that profaning of the holy name with a hallowing instead. It's the opposite, right? Every command has an opposite. Thou shalt not also implies thou shalt. You see how all these ideas intermingle and reinforce the call of the Christian life and what it means? And clarifies, I hope. I hope it clarifies and makes it clear. Oh, this is it. It's very, I think, neat and lines up very well because God is a God of order, not a God of chaos. And our call of sanctification is the same. Kill sin. Live unto righteousness. Bring it to life. And that is replace sin of lying, of stealing, of cheating with truth, hard work, and obedience, and the fruit of the Spirit as well. So this is our calling, brothers and sisters, a life of holiness, a life of separation from sin and consecration unto godliness. It's a lifelong calling. Like the priests of old, we too are called priests. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. 1 Peter 2.9, quoting the Old Testament, quoting Exodus, and again he quotes Leviticus. We are priests, and the priesthood was a lifetime profession. The call of separation and consecration is a lifelong profession and confession we are called to, brothers and sisters, and by God's grace, we can. May Leviticus, I hope, inspire you unto a holy living, and may the Spirit enable us to die into sin and to live unto righteousness, to live a life of separation and consecration. Let us pray. Gracious Spirit, Holy Spirit of truth and life, you who indwell in us, God, may we continue to be encouraged and strengthened and not to be discouraged, to look to the truth of your word here, 
as a call of grace, that you, when you give us this call of not to profane your name and to hallow it among the children of Israel, you do it because you are the Lord who sanctifies us. You are the God who is sanctifying us right now and empowering us, God, to follow your ways. Even when we fall down, Lord, you are within us so that we repent and we rise up again as the righteous man is called to do over and over again in our life. May we not be discouraged, but rather encouraged by these commands we pray. Amen. Let us stand and let us sing hymn 537, 537.
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Mm -hmm.